welcome to another week of The Collector's Show. I am Harold Nickel, the host of The Collector's Show. Thanks for joining us again. Later in the program, we are going to be talking about all things button. And I'm talking not, uh, not buttons that you push, but buttons that keep your clothes together. A collection of buttons and the president of the National Button Collecting Society in our interview segment this week on The Collector's Show. Later in the show, we'll have another segment of news because our buddy Heather Gallegos is not able to be with us this week. We had a scheduling issue we were not able to overcome. Hopefully we get that sorted out and she can come back with us next week. But There'll just be another chunk of news at the bottom of the show. First, as always, news from the world of collecting. This is about a pretty important discovery of duck decoys. It's a collection that was discovered that is described as the find of a lifetime. This was in the state of Minnesota. And I'll just read you a little bit of the story. Um, The man who discovered them was Doug Lodermeyer. And um, he is a very well-recognized collector of duck decoys. And he discovered a collection that was hand-carved by a man whose name was Ole Gunderson. He was a bachelor from Ashby, Minnesota, and he carved wooden duck decoys and hunted over them on famed Lake Christina in northwestern Minnesota at the turn of the last century. By all accounts, he lived quietly as a farm laborer and died in obscurity 50 years ago, but he's very famous now after discovering a treasure trove of the old-timers' hand-carved basswood decoys collecting dust in a shed recently. Doug Lodermeyer of Adina, Minnesota, says decoy collectors around the nation are in a tizzy. The decoys are masterpieces, among the finest ever produced in Minnesota, Lodermeyer said. A pair of Gunderson's redhead duck decoys are expected to sell for more than $20,000 at auction this coming spring. A single redneck, or sorry, (laughs) a single ringneck decoy could fetch $4,000. I don't think there are any redneck decoys. Maybe some that owned them. Lodermeyer went on to say they have a beautiful form and they look more like a sculpture than a working decoy. It's his attention to detail. He must have loved and breathed ducks, and it shows. All told, the collection of 15 to 20 decoys is worth tens of thousands of dollars. Beyond that, their discovery will preserve a prized piece of Minnesota's waterfowling history. Like I said, it's the find of a lifetime. Um... It was a hold the presses kind of a thing, apparently. So um, here's this man who just kind of in obscurity carves his own decoys and they turn out to be works of art. Incredible. Now, we like to talk about unusual collections on the show. Who would have ever thought somebody would collect paper clips? Well, a man named Harold Winters did just that. In the 1950s, Harold Winters started tucking away unique paper clips in the deep pockets of his office desk drawers. He didn't realize he was starting a collection, and he doesn't really remember why he started it, but he did. Now, Mr. Winters is 96 years old, and he has dozens of index cards displaying an assortment of hundreds of different paper clips he's acquired through the years. From the ordinary gem clip, and that's kind of the one we're all used to seeing, to the more unique owl clip, or the improved triangle-style clip. At the Ryderwood Retirement Community Hobby Fair, winners and others showed off their collections as a way to spark conversations between the residents. 
Winter's collection was quickly dubbed the most distinctive of the day by fair visitors. Residents strolled by, amazed at the variety of paper clips in Harold Winter's collection. He stood by quietly and humbly as they promised to give him any interesting clips that came their way. He said his collection really exploded after all when secretaries at his former job at the United States Department of Agriculture started keeping an eye out for unique clips and then giving them to him. And then he looked up one day and he said, I didn't realize it, but I had a collection. And even now he doesn't think his collection is anything special. Um, But the people who attended this uh, hobby fair, collector's fair, where he lives, um, certainly did. He has dozens of clips and he displays them in such a way that certainly makes it a noteworthy collection. That's kind of cool. You can collect anything. There was another story I read this week getting ready for this for the show that was titled Americans Collect Anything and Everything. So next, we're going to talk about buttons and you're going to enjoy this conversation. It's a whole unique world and look into the aspect of button collectings. There isn't just one kind of button. Some were works of art and all of them help us learn more about our history coming up next on The Collector Show. I'm Harold Nickel on Web Talk Radio. In the interview segment of this week's Collector Show, we are very happy to be joined by Annie Frazier. Annie is the president of the National Button Society. And Annie, welcome to the Collector Show. It's really nice to be here. Thank you. Now, let's talk, before we talk about the society and contemporary modern button collecting, let's talk about the advent of the button itself. Because when I was reading, getting ready for the interview today, I read that buttons really weren't used very prominently until the 19th century. Is that something you've also found? Well, uh, that's not really true. Okay. Um, Actually, some of the best um, buttons um, were born in the 18th century. Okay. And they're some of the most coveted and beautiful that are out there, Um, and interestingly enough, worn by men. Okay. Um, Many were made by jewelers for Think about the frock coats that the men wore in the late 1700s, where they might have had 12 um, buttons down each side of the frock coat. And many were hand-made uh, by jewelers, painted under glass, um, stones, uh, or glass set in metal to look like diamonds, those kinds of things. They were actually for the wealthy. So the mass production of buttons is 19th century. Um, and that's probably where you got your information from. Okay, yeah, it probably is because I got to be honest, I didn't know much about button collecting until uh, I started getting ready for the show. And the only thing I know about buttons is okay, they hold my shirt together and they're made of plastic. But what it, what I found was that there was a lot more to this than anybody ever knew, including the fact that so many were, I guess, works of art. Is that the um, way you think think of it? Sure. You know, we call them miniature works of art. And the other thing that's interesting about them is that they reflect whatever's happening in popular culture at the time. Okay. Uh, For instance, in um, the late Victorian period, children's books were extremely, illustrated children's books were extremely popular. And so manufacturers were making buttons um, 
stamped out of metal with uh, those scenes on them. Um, Kate Greenaway was a very popular writer in late Victorian times. Mm -hmm. There are numerous metal buttons that um, actually use her designs in them. Um, they were also used as political statements. The first political buttons weren't pinbacks at all. They were actually buttons worn on on uh, coats. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. Um, and probably, again, one of the most sought after is the George Washington inaugural button. Um, when he became president, the men would wear these large copper buttons on their coats, um, and they would be stamped along with the president. They might have a GW in the center, um, and uh, this would show their support of the of the new republic. So, a modern example: if uh, if we were still expressing our popular culture in buttons today, we might have Harry Potter buttons on our coats. And I'm sure they probably exist, although I can't say I've seen them. Barbie, there were Barbie buttons. There were. Um, Oh, oh, the Paddington Bear buttons. There's lots of little novelty buttons that um, are, you know, are reflective of what was popular today. I love Paddington. That was one of my favorite stories when I was uh, growing up. I, I still even like it now. So the thing that I also want to ask about with respect to button collecting is these items like George Washington's overcoat. I'll, I'll bet those buttons are pricey. Is that a fair assessment? So one of the other things I read getting ready to, to uh, chat with you today was that, I guess with the exception of those types of buttons, that starting a collection or starting a button collection was relatively inexpensive. Has that been your experience? Well, um, it, it can start out that way, and certainly that's how the hobby became was started. Um, during the Depression, um, Ladies who lunched or at the time when that was a popular thing to do um, would bring their button boxes with them, and they'd start swapping buttons. Huh. Um, it was free because everybody had a button box, and it gave you a chance to put to, uh, to put together a collection of all kinds of different little buttons. That's, that's where the hobby really began. That sounds like fun as well. And uh, we're getting a little buzz on your phone. One of the things listeners should know is that um, you're in New Jersey where it's snowing like crazy today. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're about, we're at about 24 inches already. Man, two feet of snow. And it's still snowing. <laughs> I'm surprised that the phone even works there. So, well, um, it may die in the middle of this interview. I hope not. But well, I hope not, too. Possible. Otherwise, there's going to be a lot of dead air on the show this week. But um, <laughs> we'll persevere uh, and uh, ask our listeners to just indulge us as we make it through the snow this afternoon, which we're talking on a Saturday afternoon. So back to buttons. Um the Depression era, I guess people didn't have a lot of money to spend on on collecting, but it sounds like the the women who you mentioned found a way to invent a new hobby. That's exactly what happened. And then um, uh, in the late 1930s, um, at an antique show in Chicago, um, they actually sat down and, and developed the National Button Society and made it an organized collecting group. And this is the same group that you're affiliated with, right? Mm-hmm. I'm president of the National Button Society. We have um, close to 3,000 members internationally. Wow. Um, and many of the states have their own state societies as well. Now, we're going to want to talk later on about the uh, online community that exists 
for button collectors, but let's talk about you. How did you first get interested in collecting buttons? Well, um, it actually happened through a family friend. Uh, my husband and I lived in Bucks County at the time, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and we used to love to go to auctions and flea markets, and there were many antique flea markets in that area. Um, this is about 20 years ago, and we had a, and we, because we were auction addicts, we started accumulating way too many things. <laughs> we'd buy these box lots and where you'd want one thing, and then you got left with 20 more things you didn't really want. Uh-huh. So um, we began selling at the flea, mar- flea markets on the weekend. Um, and for us, it was a lot of fun. And we had a family friend whose parents had both passed away, and we were helping him sell items from his house. Mm-hmm. And he said to us, do you want to sell some buttons? I said, sure. I didn't know anything about it. I mean, you know. So I took the box. He he sold us a pizza box full of loose buttons. And at the time, I didn't realize his mother had actually been a collector and a dealer. Oh. I didn't really know um, how collectible buttons were. They were interesting to look at, but that's about all I knew. Right. So um, we trotted off to the flea market, and I opened up that pizza box and set it on the table, and sold the buttons for a dollar fifty cents and a quarter and I kind of based it on size mm-hmm. um, and I was swamped with customers and they were buying like crazy and I knew I was doing something terribly wrong because um, it's never that easy to sell anything unless you're selling it way too cheaply yeah that's uh, I think that's a good indicator that uh, yeah I'm 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 goofing up yeah. <laughs> if they're well, moving I, like that uh, I quickly closed that box um, and shoved it back in the car, and I said, ah, I better do some research on this stuff. Of course, now half the box is gone, but um, too late for that. Right. So, um, and then I went home and started to sort through the piles, and I was was making little uh, piles of buttons that looked like they belonged together. At the time, I didn't realize I was actually sorting them by material. And then I and then I became fascinated with them. I just really sat down and looked at them um, closely, and um, I just thought they were beautiful, and I became hooked. Huh. So the cell pile got small, and the keep pile got bigger and bigger. Okay. And that's how it began. So how did you decide? You said you sorted them by how they were made or what they were made of. Is that the way you would display them? Um, well, yeah, there are lots of ways to display them. What collectors generally do is we have shadow box frames, and we collect by theme. Or, for instance, there are lots of buttons that have cupids on them mm-hmm. as their theme, and you might have a whole... Um, card of buttons um, in the shadow box frame and you know of that ilk and that's and then we display them in our homes as art on the wall that gets me to another point about button collecting and I bet I already know the answer but as you sorted them by materials are there people who collect just um, glass buttons or people who collect just buttons made out of copper is there a a subculture in the in the world of button collecting. There are quite a few people who will specialize. I remember um, there was a woman years ago who used to come to the show, and all she collected were uh, diminutive buttons. And she had this. We have a button measure um, that we use in, in collecting society, and it had to be smaller than um, a half an inch. And she had hundreds and hundreds of these tiny little buttons, and that's what she collected. But generally what happens is you might specialize, and the next thing you know, you're often running, you know, into a new 
area. Um, so much as you like to try to specialize, it's pretty hard to, to stay there. My husband is an avid collector, too, and he collects uniform buttons. And he started out collecting um, American military, Civil War and, and uh, pre-Civil War and that, that period. But um, now, of course, um, he's into steamship and railroad and airline buttons and, you know, I mean, you start on one path, but it tends to get wider and wider as you go along. Isn't that the truth? And it sounds like I have a hard time wrapping my brain around um, the diminutive buttons, but military uniform buttons, yeah, I I guess maybe it's because I'm a man. I, I, I can totally get that, so... It sounds like there are, like what you said, um, specialization. I said subculture. Specialization is a much better word. But those kinds of things that would distinguish one collection from another, I think is what I'm trying to say. Right, right. Well, uh, I mean, there are certain people, you know, that, you know, when you see their collection, obviously they specialize in a time period, for instance, um, 18th century buttons, which is, you know, is an expensive specialization, because again, those are buttons in the hundreds into the thousands per butt. Because there's probably so few of them is what drives the cost up, right? Oh, sure, sure. And again, you're talking about an individual piece of artwork. Some are, are painting um, painting watercolor under glass on, on vellum or paper, and, um, and there actually are a few, not many um, that I know of, but there are a few buttons that are made of real gold and, um, you know, have real gemstones. I want those. Oh, I would like those too. <laughs> I don't have too many of those. Give me the real gold buttons. That's Especially neat. Especially in today's gold market, right? Exactly. If you're just tuning in, it's the Collector Show with Harold Nickel, and we're chatting today with Annie Frazier, who is the president of the National Button Society, and we're talking about button collecting later in the program. Heather Gallegos and the Found Collectible of the Week. Let's get back though to the artwork on buttons. Were there people, and I'm going to guess that there were, who specialized in just drawing or painting buttons as works of art? I think no. I think they were probably artists, and it was a way to subsidize their income. Okay. So uh, a rich aristocrat would commission an artist to to you know to paint him a, a set of miniature scenes, and then you know a jeweler would set them you know for this man for his coat. Um, so it wasn't a particular person that would specialize in it, per se. And why was it, sorry, why was it left to a jeweler to set the button? Well, I mean, to actually make it, because there was no mass production at the time. Oh, okay. Okay, so every button was handmade, individually handmade. I'm talking about buttons in the in the uh, 1700s. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. They, there was, they didn't just stamp them out. They had to be... They had to be handmade, yeah. Carved or whatever. That's neat. Now, what would you say in your personal collection, or even in your husband's, what's the most noteworthy button that you own? Um, probably, um, I have a button uh, made by Lalique, which is one of my favorite. It's a glass button. Um, it is uh, molded, and it's a scene, of, um, sort of an iridescent scene of a beautiful woman. You know, I think it's an, a nude. That's one of my personal favorites and one of the best buttons I have. And I also have a set of um, 18th century buttons from the French Revolution. Oh, wow. And these are reverse painted on glass. 
and they actually depict patriotic scenes that are associated with the French Revolution. And these are displayed in your personal collection? Do you ever loan them to museums or give expositions or things like that? I do programs, and many collectors will do programs for local historical societies and things like that, um, and I certainly do that. Um, the other thing that that is unique to our particular hobby is that when we have a convention and get together, we have competitions. And um, wow, what what are the what are the guidelines or the parameters for competing in a button competition? Well, um, we would write, particularly write uh, a competition, say, um, cupids would might be the theme, and you had to have 20 large cupid buttons. Mm. And everybody would go around and try to get their best and brightest, and if they entered the competition, they would be judged. Um, and there are different criteria that are used to judge them, depending on how the, the competition is written. Um, and then you would get a ribbon, so you get a first, second, or a third, and you might have thousands of dollars worth of buttons on this particular uh, frame of buttons that you're trying to, you know, win, um, you know, win a ribbon for, and the prize is usually about five dollars. So <laughs> it's, it's all about the glory. It's you know? the pride so of the, the pride of having won, certainly not the uh, the monetary reward. Now, one of the things I thought I mean, maybe this is cheating, but if you went to, say, a thrift store, or you were mentioning earlier flea markets, and you bought old clothes to take the buttons off of them, anybody ever do that? Well, I have never found interesting buttons on old clothes, because think about it. Everybody's grandmother and great-grandmother had a button box, and they always saved them. Mm -hmm. So when the clothes wore out, they cut the buttons off and put them in a box and reused them later on. So... um, Generally, it's really, really difficult to find a piece of old clothing that has, you know, really interesting buttons. But what is happening now with the modern collector, and and again, the collector who doesn't have a lot of disposable income, they might be going to the thrift shops and buying clothes uh, for for modern buttons. Mm-hmm. Um, old ch- uh, children's clothes today, you know, if they're going to the secondhand store. Uh, they'll have the Winnie the Pooh buttons, and people like collecting things like that as well, or comic uh, comic book characters depicted on buttons, things like that. So there is that aspect of it, but as far as finding really old antique buttons on clothing, I've never had much luck with that. Okay, so that I was hoping that would lead to the next question, but it's going to anyway. Um, with respect to people who are listening who might want to start a button collection, it sounds like the thrift store isn't the way to go, what would be a good way to just start from no buttons to starting a collection? Well, the first thing you do is, is you know, ask Grandma to go through her button box. Okay. And see if there's anything in, in there that catches your eye. It doesn't have to be a valuable button, but if there's something in there that you like the looks of, I mean, that's a good way to start. Okay. Um, and and the, actually the easiest thing to do... Um, of course, eBay is full of buttons. You know, you can look on eBay, and there are thousands and thousands of items of buttons on there, on the uh, eBay list. But um, one of the good things to do is go to the National Button Society website. Okay. And um, you'll be able to find a, a local a local club or a state organization. And if you can get in, t- in touch with somebody who's close to you, and can mentor you, that's really the best way to get going. Tell us what your website address is. 
uh, www.nationalbuttonsociety.org. Okay. Um, all one word. Yes, all one word. Um, and uh, it lists uh, all the state societies and the local clubs. There's lots of information about button collecting. There are links to many uh, other websites that show gal uh, galleries of um, interesting collectible buttons with descriptions and, um, um, you know, mostly so you know what you're looking at. The website sounds like a good resource. And um, what kinds of events or conventions, conferences do you guys sponsor during the year? Well, the National Organization has um, a convention once a year, and it moves around the country. And it's always in August. Uh, late July or early August. Um, this year, we're going to be in New Hampshire, mm. uh, in Manchester, New Hampshire. And um, we also have um, regional um, meetings. Um, there's a group uh, called the Northeast Regional Button Association, which is actually the host for our national this year. But they have a show, uh, show in Connecticut once a year. There's a show in um, Reno, Nevada, once a year. It's a Western Regional Button Association. And then you go down to the state level. So many, many states have shows, some, usually twice a year. And you said your society has 3,000 members? Almost 3,000 members. Yeah. And does there a, is there a cost to join, or do you just sign up? Uh, our membership, uh, well, of course, you can access the website uh, without any problem. That's free, and the information that's on there is free. But we publish a bulletin um, of five, five issues a year, um, and they run. Uh, they have lots of color pages in them and interesting articles. Um, and membership is thirty-five dollars a year. And so the membership includes a subscription to the newsletter. Right. Awesome, Annie Frazier, the president of the National Button Society. Thank you so much for being on the Collector Show with us this week and introducing us to the world of button collecting. Oh, my pleasure. And we hope you come to the site and check us out. Absolutely. Stay tuned. More on the Collector Show coming up next on Web Talk Radio. Well, I hope you enjoyed our interview about button collecting. I thought it was enjoyable, and in spite of the buzzy phone, I uh, learned a lot, and we'll have her back on. We won't have the found collectible of the week, but we do have another news item that I wanted to share with you, and this is about a man who collects toy boats, and his name is Jerry Bauer, ironically from the town of Gig Harbor, and you can read this story Crazy about toy boats at the Kitsap Sun newspaper, Jerry Bauer was one of those kids who liked collecting stuff. He was so obsessed about boats that he actually brought home bags full of brochures from boat shows. Only unlike most kids, Bauer never outgrew that habit. Now 49 years old, Bauer has what may be the most extensive private collection of toy boats in the United States. He certainly has enough to fill a museum and has, in fact, been invited to display about 800 of his toy boats at the Maritime Museum in Tacoma, Washington. 
The collection dates back to a couple of boats he received for his second birthday, and the collection has every type of toy boat imaginable, from matchbox plastic to homemade boats made out of metal or rubber, and the smallest the size of a fingernail, and some as big as 70 inches. Among the boats are a very rare Panama Canal set that looks very realistic, and a boat made out of matchsticks by an Ohio prison inmate. Guys in prison got lots of time on their hands. When he was a bachelor, Bauer displayed the boats all around his home, and Rachel, his wife now of 20 years, recalls those early marriage days when she was afraid to knock them over while walking through the hallway and putting them back in the wrong order. Bauer knew, and still does, the place of every single boat, along with where he bought it, how much he paid, and a little history of each. His wife said, I thought he was crazy. But I still, and I still don't get his collecting boats, but um, she stayed married to him for 20 years, so, you know, what the heck. He has hopes of somehow turning this into um, a business, and he's even named it Bowers Overboy Toy Boats. That's hard to say. Bowers Overboard Toy Boats. But um, it also says he's not willing to part with any of his collection. Not sure how you're going to make a business out of that. So anyway, that's our extended news segment for this week on The Collector Show. I hope you enjoyed listening. Certainly had fun doing it. Be sure to check out our website, www.thecollectorshow.com. You can friend me on Facebook or you can follow me on Twitter. And Facebook, just go to my name, Harold Nickel, and I would love to have some listeners joining there. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Collector Show. Thank you for listening to Web Talk Radio. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you some art Thanks for listening to The Collector Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars I'd buy your love I'd be rich.